Hi there, and welcome to the Wayback Music Machine podcast, the show that takes a lighthearted look at the week that was in rock and roll history. I'm Tony Stewart. I'm Aaron Badgley. Aaron, guess what? I Mm. read the news today, oh boy. We're doing a day in the life show. We are doing a day in the life show, and in fact, we're doing a day in the life of rock history for July 12th. So you're ready for a a big adventure here? That was nice singing, by the way. Oh, thank you. It's very nice singing. Yes, I'm ready. I'm ready. All right, buckle up and uh, here we go. So we're going to take a look at July 12th and we'll be right back. A lot of important things happened on July 12th. And one of the most important things happened in 1954 when a very young 19-year-old Elvis Presley signed a recording contract with Sun Records. Uh, That's in Memphis. Um, Pretty important day in rock and roll history, wouldn't you say, Tony? (laughs) I think that's a bit of an understatement for sure. It is, yes. (laughs) Yes, one of the most important days in rock and roll history. This is a label. There's a lot of things about Sun Records that people may not know. I mean, the obvious that people will know is that it was run by Sam Phillips. But what people may not know is Sun Records, prior to signing Elvis Presley, recorded a lot of black artists, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. You know, a lot of blues artists. B.B. King was a was a Sun artist. Uh, who are some of the other big names? I'm just trying to think off the top of my head here. But You know what? I'm going to have to Google that, Tony, because okay. I remember there was a lot of artists in, from Memphis who are, let's go to Sun Records, and I'll tell you in one second. Okay? okay, we'll pull up the Google machine here and... Hey, let me tell you. Okay, so some of the artists that were signed to to uh, Billy Emerson, the AdLibs, believe it or not, the AdLibs, the Dixie Cups, uh, before they made it big. And my favorite, one of my favorite of all time, when you're looking at the black artists, you're talking about Howlin' Wolf, Frank yes. Frost, James Cotton, um, Johnny Adams. These are these are groundbreaking artists in the fields of rhythm and blues, blues, and later rock and roll. Yeah, and you know, Sam Phillips had a mission. He wanted this music to to get out into the world. And his final final convincing to sign Elvis Presley, because it took some time. It wasn't a, a right-away type of thing. Elvis had been in the studio a few times, and Phillips had a moderate interest in him, but not all that spectacular you know he didn't think elvis was all that spectacular he thought he could sing but marion keisker who worked with Mm -hmm. sam phillips in the studio she was the one who really saw something and she said you gotta sign this kid so he finally gets him back in and we know what happens right like the legendary story of recording that's all right mama but uh it took some coaxing and I think, though, finally Sam Phillips realized this was the missing piece in a segregated South, is that in order for this music to be able to get wider radio play, you needed a a white kid who sounded like he was black, and and that was Elvis Presley. And, And that sounds a little politically incorrect to say that nowadays, but Elvis was uh, what this burgeoning music really needed to get radio play. Well, yeah. And in fact, the first stuff that Elvis records for Sam uh, with Marion, the song called Without You, 
it 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 doesn't do well with Sam. He's like, eh, it's okay, whatever, you know, blah blah blah. But it's it's later on when they do the kind of they're just him and the um, his combo, Scotty Moore and and Bill Black on bass, Scotty Moore on guitar. When they do, it's all right, Mummy, which you've mentioned, and you know, I think it is the missing link, the missing piece that needed. It was the missing piece of the puzzle to put everything together, right? Well, absolutely, because you know there was. I remember Rolling Stone said that moment in the studio when they did that's all right mama which was a happy accident we've talked about that lots on this show before rolling stone magazine said that is the start of rock and roll a lot of people don't agree with that um, and and for good reason i mean you can back it up to 1951 and say a song like rocket 88 might have been the first rock and roll song but this was the big this was rock and rolls coming out party i think that moment when he did that's all right mama and signed to sun records i like to look at it like the the big bang before the big bang there was a number of little bangs that had to happen before the big bang happened and elvis heard a lot of that music you're talking about and he incorporated it with his own sound the fact that the b side of his first single is a rockabilly version of of blue moon over kentucky or blue moon of kentucky you know, is says it all. He's taking a you know a, a bluegrass song, yeah, and he just jazzes it up, man, to be rock and roll or rockabilly or rock, whatever you want to call it. And I think Rolling Stone hit the nail on the head. I mean, this was this was the spark. This was this set. This exploded the whole thing, you know. And without Elvis, everything else that came before him would never have gotten noticed. Well, that's right. You know and, what I mean? And when you when you see interviews with people like Little Richard or even Chuck Berry, they acknowledge that. They acknowledge that Elvis was important. You know, it may be begrudging. They may not like the fact that it, that it took a white artist. But they also acknowledge that, look, I owe a good chunk of my career to Elvis Presley, right? They just do. <laughs> if not bank account. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, he he covered uh, Little Richard songs that Richard wrote. Okay, so he got some of the publishing rights too, but Little Richard made some money off that as well. So, you know, and I think it's it, I think it's a bit late in the game when people started talking about that. I don't think in the '60s and the '70s you heard anyone, um, kind of making those statements. It was it was always very complimentary about Elvis. I mean, this is a guy that really we we talked about this. You know, he didn't knock on the door and open it up. He kicked it down. Well, absolutely. And I, I always like to refer to that, that famous B.B. King interview where B.B. King says, no, I had like nothing but respect and admiration for Elvis Presley, you know, uh, because people like to put it's, it's this whole, and I always use the air quotes because I can't stand the term either. This whole woke movement that, that, you know, all of a sudden Elvis Presley is a cultural appropriator and you know, I'm not going to rant on that again, but you know how I feel about that. I, I feel like that is an extremely misguided attitude. I totally agree. And I think that it's it's a bit of, we're putting 2022 glasses on to look at something that happened in 19, what, 54, 56, 57. You can't compare the two. And I, again, I don't think this was a conscious decision on Elvis's part to uh, manipulate or steal music or, you know, um, whatever no. you want to call it, you know? No, and that's what musicians do. We borrow each other's music and we, we get influenced by something. And we, we, I mean, that has been going on as long as there have been musicians. So this idea that you can't be inspired by something is just 
ludicrous. But um, on another note, have you seen the movie yet? Nope. Going to go this. Uh, I was going to go today. Actually, I was going to take the afternoon off work. Okay. <laughs> but I can't. So I'm going to either go tomorrow or I'm going to go on Friday afternoon. Okay. I yeah, text me as soon as you're done and let me know what you I thought. promise. Yeah. I promise. Yeah. Uh, you you have my word of honor on that. Now, you know, in the movie, there is a fantastic scene and we're, let's talk about that. It comes up a little bit later in 1954 on October 16th, but this is the infamous, uh, Louisiana hayride, uh, performance. And this is where all of a sudden nobody knows what to do with this kid. You know, he comes on, he's nervous and the legs start shaking and the girls start going nuts and nobody knows what's going on and you're going to see in the movie they do a brilliant job of portraying the chaos of that performance every it's just nobody knows what's happening they all know something is happening and they all know that things are changing and and you're never going to put the lid back on that pot but uh it, they do a brilliant job of portraying that and you'll see exactly what i mean i can't wait to see it because i've heard recordings from the Louisiana Hayride. And for, for those of you who don't know, this was a weekly radio show that was you know, broadcast live to 190 stations in 13 states, and actually in Canada too, from KWKH Radio. And um, he was a regular on the show, as was people like Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, all these people. But Elvis set it on fire, pardon the pun of Louisiana Hayride. See what I did there? Yeah, very nice, very nice. <laughs> Now I'm going to tell you something. When I when I watched the movie, I I during that scene, I was like, "Oh my god, I'm crying." I had tears yeah. of of absolute elation, like it was literally tears of joy watching that scene. That's how good of a job they did of portraying what that must have been like. So just be warned, forewarned, you know. Yeah, I'm crying a lot these days at certain <laughs> movies. <laughs> Let me tell you. Hey, I have a question for you. Okay. Do you think it's time for an Everly Brothers biopic now? I think that would be great. Is there one in the works? No, but unless <laughs> you and I do it. No, I just think their, their history too, where they broke up on stage and- It would and be, it would be fantastic. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, I'm just trying to picture who would play them, but I, I can't I think know, off the top of I don't know any actors under 30. <laughs> <laughs> no, same here. Now, let's take a look at what you picked for charts for this time period. Again, you know, we're, we're 1954, so it's going to be a little bit of everything. I'm sure I'm going out on a limb here, and I'm guessing that Perry Como or someone of that ilk has got to be on this chart. Number five, get your cardigans out. And number five is Perry Como, a song called Wanted. Do you know it? I do know Wanted. And actually, I um, was shopping here in my new hometown of Perth yesterday and I went into a store and she was playing Perry Como and Wanted was on while I was in there so Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, it was What, what, kind, was of, whole, what kind of store was it? It is um it's called Dragonfly and it, they sell like wind chimes and things like that and it's pretty cool. Very cool. But she <laughs> was she was Yeah, she had Perry Como on and uh, very relaxing. I I felt very very relaxed when I was shopping in there. <laughs> how, how could you not yeah. wind chimes and Perry Como combined together oh my gosh I'd, I'd be napping <laughs> uh, number four Frank Weir and the Happy Wanderer number three Archie Blair and Hernando's Hideaway number two Four Aces Three Coins in the Fountain and number one um, a song my mum 
simply loved and I listened to my entire childhood. Kitty Callan, Little Things Mean a Lot. Oh, that's actually a great chart because Three Coins in the Fountain was a great song too. You know, and it's pre it's pre rock and roll. I mean, rock and roll starting to bubble up, but it's really pre rock and roll. And and you get a nice cross section of of the crooners, I guess, and they get the you know R and B influence, and then a little bit of country with Kitty Callan. You know, no, oh, exactly. Now, listen, this kind of would qualify as a, a Memphis to Merseyside moment, but we have another one for the next segment, and this. Uh, we're going to go to July 12th, 1958, f- only four years later. And we're going to be talking pre-Beatles, which is pretty exciting. So you're ready to go? I'm so ready. Yeah, let's do this. So July 12th, 1958, we're going across the pond, of course, and we're in Liverpool. And the precursor to the Beatles was a group called the Quarrymen. And on this day, they did something actually pretty significant. And I think uh, there's still a record of this, but they actually cut, I guess it would be a demo, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it exists. Paul McCartney owns it. It's the it's valued as the most valuable record in history because there's only one copy left, and oh, um, wow. well, there was only one ever made. To be honest with you, it's a, so it's the Quarrymen, which at that time was John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, John Duffalo, and Col- on piano, Colin Hanton on drums. By the way, Tony, that last segment we did about Elvis, this is directly related. Here are these guys in Liverpool who are influenced by Lonnie Donegan and Skiffle, but then here. Elvis Presley and then go for it, you know? Yeah. And that's what John Lennon said that right before. What was his famous quote before Elvis? There was nothing. There, there was nothing. Yeah. Before, <laughs> before Elvis, there was nothing. Which of course there was stuff before Elvis, but you get the point. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this guy named Percy Phillips, he owned a shop and he used to cut. Do you remember? Well, you grew up, well, you remember the exhibition? They used to have these little recording booths where you could go in and make your own record. You know, yeah. Before, yeah. Yeah. This is very similar to that. And they made a 78 RPM, 10-inch disc. On one side was That'll Be the Day. And on the other side was a song called In Spite of All the Danger, which I put on the playlist last week. And it's the only song that George and Paul wrote together. It's Usually it's Lennon McCartney. This was a Harrison McCartney song. Oh, wow. Brilliant song. And this week I put That'll Be the Day on um, the Spotify playlist because they're both available on Anthology One. Uh, but it's, it's historic because you get a glimpse into hearing early Beatles, and you can hear their influences, the country, the folk music they're listening to, um, all sorts of really, really cool things. But um, this label or this company that Percy Phillips had was really kind of cool because he kept recordings of everything he did. So, you know, I think his family now have ownership of all the stuff he put out. I got a a four-album box set of stuff recorded in his studio from 19... 40 up into 66 or something and it's really inco- like incredible stuff like poetry and 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 war reenactments and news and very cool well you know and that's significant for another reason is you know nowadays right as younger listeners especially are like well what's the big deal he kept everything he recorded you just put it on a hard drive we're talking tape and, tape. and it, it, and, expensive and yeah and yeah. expensive you know so uh, a lot of times, like there's tons of instances where tape is reused or 
it's just it was so expensive so that is a massive project for him to keep everything that he recorded over those 20 years and and tape starts to fall apart after as we found out when when frank zappa went to reissue his 60s albums and a lot of the tapes had deteriorated he had to redub a lot of stuff onto tapes but but for some reason percy was able to keep things pretty intact which is it's, the history is just beyond imagination, you know? Yeah, that is amazing. Now, you've got, I th- this is a cool note here, uh, about an album called Open for Engagements uh, in 95. <laughs> well, that's amazing. Let, let's just talk about that for a moment. So the Quarrymen, they got back together again in 1995 to play at the same garden fete that Paul and John had met at. And they had such a good time they decided to record an album. <laughs> so it was um, Pete Shotton, Rod Davies, Len Gary, Eric Griffiths. And Co- I have the album. Colin Hanton, Hanton's on it too. It's a great rockabilly album, you know. But yeah, can you believe it? it? So their debut album, they have a record. They hold a world's record for the longest time between forming a band. <laughs> and releasing an album. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's what 1956 to 1995 would be what 40 39 years. Yeah, that's a long time. Hey, good job on the math there by the way. Nicely done. Hey. Thank you. See, it rubs <laughs> off, man. <laughs> 39 years. Can you imagine what that it's just it's a great album. I, and unfortunately, it's not on Spotify or I would have included some of the songs, but it's it's a fun album to hear, so. Um, so Tony. Yeah. Here's the good news is when I go to Liverpool next month, I get to go to Percy Phillips's little studio. It's still there. Oh my goodness. I'm jealous by the so way. I'll take a lot of pictures for you. Promise. Yes, please, please do. Yeah. Uh, wow. That's going to be, cause you've wanted to get, go there your whole life, right? So my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to be the trip of a lifetime. The last time we planned it, I got canceled by COVID and I swear <laughs> it best not happen again. No, but, it, um, exactly. So there you go. Then it's an historic, see, much like the Sun Records sessions, this is historic too for other reasons, but this is kind of cool to hear early pre-Beatles, and they're not the Beatles, they are the Quarrymen, and it's different. It's not the Beatles. Yeah, and in fact, it's it's always interesting, you know, how, uh, we won't talk about that now, but their journey from obscure band to making it big was was not a straight path by any means, and I find that fascinating. I was having lunch with my daughter, Linda, and she said, to, she just out of the blue, she said, do you think it's weird that like 1962, the Beatles were playing the Cavern and five years later, they're doing Pepper? Like five years is not a long time, right? No, it's astounding the, the transformation in such a short period of time. I just, I, and I never thought of it in those terms that from 19, because before the Love Me Do single, they're still playing the Cavern, they're still doing two shows a day. Then all of a sudden, five years later, hey, here's Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> well, and look at pictures from Society from 1962, and then look yeah. at pictures from 1967. You want to talk societal transformation. Oh, boy. Yeah, good point. Good point. Excellent point, yeah. Now, I mean, the beer, the Beatles played a, a big part in spearheading that transformation, but still, it's it's amazing. Yeah, I think, I think, I wish I could have been, you know, older in the 60s to appreciate the social the music, the everything changes that were going on so rapidly, you know? Yeah, I, I wonder if there will ever be uh, another time period like that. You know, I I think, I hate to be critical, but I feel like people might be too complacent nowadays to affect what kind of change needs to happen. Well, that and we've segregated so much now. So yeah. 
in the early 60s, you know, you'd hear Elvis and country and R&B and pop and everything else. And you could see all these different fashions from across the board. Even though there was no internet, people were open to seeing, oh my gosh, you see what they're wearing in London, you know? Yeah. We're so now, we're so fixated on, I only listen to this kind of music, I only look at this kind of clothes, I only, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. we're, we're so set on our, um, I'm not, but then I didn't grow up that way. Yeah, no, same here, same here, That you know, but you're exactly right. Now, you're uh, UK, you picked a UK top five here, this is a really interesting chart I, well one of your favorites i'm being very sarcastic here is uh sliding in at number five but uh, tell us about he that keeps chart. Haunting, he's haunting me he's haunting me <laughs> haunting me uh dear old pat boone at number five <laughs> sugar moon pat boone you know i think we should devote a show one day to just to talk about mr boone and the not good things he did um did you like debbie boone's you light up my life my honest not yeah. No, uh, I just find it too saccharine sweet for my taste, but that's just me. Did you yeah, like it? I, I, it was a song that I didn't mind the first 300 times I heard it when it came out, but yeah. then it just got, it's like, I will always love you. I never want to hear that song again. No, you know? no, exactly. Exactly. Number four is Vic Damone on the street where you live. Oh, I, you know what? I love that song. Do you know, do you know Vic Damone? I do actually. Yeah. I know his version, but it's a great song period. Now, how do you how do you know Victor Bone? I'm curious. Ah, uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure, but I I I totally can hear his version of that right yeah. in my head as you mentioned that. It's a good version of that song. Eh? Mm-hmm. It is. Number three is Max Bygraves, who I grew up listening to because you know he was very big in Toronto for some reason. Tulips from Amsterdam Hands. Number two, four neat God. No, yeah. four preps. <laughs> Big man. And that's and not a one, cover of, that's not a cover of the, uh, no, I was thinking Fats Domino, but that's the fat man. Sorry. Yeah. That's the fat man. Yeah. No. Can you imagine if the four preps did a Domino, Fats Domino cover? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm willing to, I'm, I'm willing to set a time machine and go back and suggest it to them. Yeah. That would be um, great. <laughs> number one, the Everly Brothers. All I have to do is dream backed with the wonderful Claudette. Both songs made number one in the UK on the top on the record mirror charts. So there you go. Now, if we continue, I love the Everly brothers. Yeah, me too. Me too. And you're right. They, that'd be a great biopic, wouldn't it? It would be great. So we're going to, uh, now on July 12th, take a look at 1962 right after the break. So we'll be right back. July 12th seems to be a date of a lot of firsts, a lot of recording firsts, debuts. And this is no exception. In 1962, a little-known band make their live debut at the Marquee Jazz Club in London. And that group, you may know, is called the Rolling Stones. And what's interesting is at the time, um, the drummer of the Stones, so I guess it wasn't uh, Watts, Charlie Watts, was Mick Avery, who would go on to be a member of one of my all-time favorite bang- bands, the Kinks. They weren't even called the Rolling Stones. They were known as the Rollin', like R-O-L-L-I-N apostrophe Stones, and they were paid about 20 pounds for the gig, which is about, what, 330 pounds in 2010. So Rolling Stones make their debut, Tony. 
Yep. And it's interesting, isn't it? The uh, the Marquee Jazz Club. Now, the Stones were heavily influenced by uh, Mississippi Delta Blues and mm-hmm. were primarily a blues band when they first started. But uh, Brian Jones wanted bandmates and he advertised in a magazine called Jazz Weekly. And he advertised that on the week of May the 2nd, 1962, looking for bandmates. And Ian Stewart was the first to respond. Uh, he found them a place to practice together, and then they decided to play to form a band playing the Chicago-style blues. And then in June, uh, Mick Jagger, Dick Taylor, and Keith Richards left a band called Blues Incorporated to join with Joints and Stewart. Uh, and right off the bat, though, you know, uh, Mick Jagger was into playing songs by Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley, but they were um, they were more wanted to be a little older style of blues the delta blues but there was that seed of the rock and roll right by mick jagger and keith richards early on i think i think that caused a rift too between brian jones and richards and and jagger i think jones wanted to keep the band pretty pure blues you know like chicago style blues and i think jagger and richards they loved the blues and they really you know they they thrived on it but they also you know they were influenced by Elvis and Scotty Moore. We, we we talked a couple of weeks ago, Keith Richards, talking about Scotty Moore was one of his biggest influences as a guitar player, right? Yeah. And so, so yeah. You know, the whole, uh, the Rolling Stone, uh, the, because that's what they were called, the Rolling Stones, before they put the G on there. And uh, that was just based off a of Muddy Waters album, right? Rolling Stone. And uh, Bill Wyman wasn't yet a member. He'd come later, but there's that jazz connection, right? He advertises in Jazz Weekly, Brian Jones does, and Bill Wyman was a jazz drummer. And up until his death, actually, that was his favorite type of music still. You know, and you remember in 2016 when the Stones did an album, and it was actually one of their biggest albums in the past 20 years, called Blue and Lonesome, where they didn't write any songs and they just they did old Chicago blues songs for mm. the first time since 62. Did you remember that album? I do. I do. It's fantastic. Yeah. I think that's when they're at their best personally. Um, I mean, okay. Full disclosure. I'm not the biggest Stones fan in the world. <laughs> no, I'm not either, you know, but, but I love that early blues stuff. I, you know, it's the same for me. I like the Stones more than I like Zeppelin. I'm not a Zeppelin fan at all, but but I do appreciate uh, Zeppelin's early stuff when they were really influenced by the blues. I'm, I, I've, I've started listening to that stuff and, and I really like it. And it's the same with the Stones. I, I love listening to them when they're getting down and dirty and just playing some Mississippi Delta blues. It's fantastic. You know, like, you know, Baby, Please Don't Go. Like that song is fantastic. I love that stuff, right? Oh, well, absolutely. And so are you a fan of the animals then? Same reason, like the early animals when they were doing the blues stuff? Yeah. I mean, now here's the question though. Why, why were the Brits so good at playing blues? That's a good question. And, and, and where did they hear it? Well, it must, must have been Radio Luxembourg or something, right? I, would those well, old blues albums have been coming in on the boats? Like, I don't know. There's a famous story about that in Liverpool where all the sailors were going to America and they were coming back with all these records. And no one knew if they were hits or not. They just devoured them. And I think they made their way to London, you know, um, a lot of these American imports. And the British, I mean, up until the late 70s, there were still bands who were really, you know, you look at 
early Fleetwood Mac. This is like the 1960s Fleetwood Mac when you have Peter Green in them. And you have um, Jeff Beck and Clapton. Clapton was a great blues guitarist, right, mm-hmm. uh, initially. I mean, he's still a great guitarist. I'm not saying he's not a great guitarist, but he was very influenced by the blues too. So that's a good point. There should be a there should be a book about that. There England should and the blues because it know? doesn't. I mean, they're two very very different worlds, you know, and 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 yet the Brits did it really really well. And in fact, I I would argue that uh, mu- musicians from the UK did more to spur along an appreciation appreciation of the blues in later years than American musicians did. Well, and there's a really good interview with Howlin' Wolf in 1969 where he's he's going to London and he's recording and he's touring England and he's, he's recording in London and he says, you know, if it wasn't for London and England, I'd be broke. Um, my yeah. career is here, you know? So it, it's really interesting that that um, they were even able to see, like the, the you know, same thing with BB King. I have a, I have an album called BB King in London, and it's not a live album; it's a studio album. But they had a following there, right? So, pretty cool. Yeah, very, very cool. And and, and speaking of cool, your your chart here from nineteen sixty two, July twelfth, is cool as well. Let's go over that. Before we do that, I want to just because I love connecting the dots today. So you have Elvis influencing the Beatles, right? Mm-hmm. Quarrymen, the Beatles. The Beatles championed the Stones to Decca Records, who turned down the Beatles initially. <laughs> That's so right. The, That's so right. De- so, so Decca's like, we're not making that mistake twice. They signed the Stones, and the Stones have a few flop singles. Their first top 10 single in the UK is I Want to Be Your Man, yes. which John and Paul wrote for them, right? Yes. And uh, didn't uh, he? Didn't they sign the Stones on scene? Like, because... Yeah. <laughs> Just because they did not want a, another Beatles debacle to happen? Yeah, it was like, okay, okay, we'll take them, we'll take them. <laughs> that's right. I think that was Harrison, right, who had mentioned that and said, you got to sign these guys. And yeah, that's hilarious. <laughs> Can you imagine if they didn't? <laughs> um, let me make this right. You turned down the Stones and the Beatles. Okay, who? You, you, want, you want to turn down Zeppelin, the Kings, Dylan, who? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, the UK top five in 1962. Now this is this is interesting because the number and I didn't do this intentionally. I swear. Yeah. The number one single connects to the next story we're going to talk about. It absolutely does. Yeah. So number five is and what's really interesting when I do the charts for the next segment, you're going to hear a couple of names like Brian Highland is in the American top five with the flip side. So I'll, I'll explain in a second. Number five is Brian Highland, Ginny Come Lately instead of Johnny Come Lately. Elvis Presley, number four with Good Luck Charm. Number three, Joe Brown. Now, Joe Brown is someone that's not well-known over here, but he was massive in the UK. A song called A Picture of You. And if you watch the George Harrison tribute concert, he actually ends the concert on playing a mandolin. Um, it's, it's a beautiful, He lived next door to George oh, in, okay. in later years. Number two is Mick. Uh, Mick. <laughs> Let's try that again. Mike Sarn, Come Outside. And number one. We're going to talk about this. Ray Charles, I Can't Stop Loving You, which was incredible to think this song made number one for many reasons. Yeah, and you know what? You talk about a beautiful segue because it that song made number one on the exact same day as the Stones made their live debut. So why don't we take a break and uh, we'll find out what happened exactly. Exactly. 
Okay, so we're back. And the number one song on July 12th, 1962 in the UK was an unlikely one. I Can't Stop Loving You by Ray Charles. And that's what we're going to talk about right now. It's the same day. And Ray Charles went to number one. And this is a country ballad written by Don Gibson. But you remember we talked about that. Was it last episode or a few episodes ago? Like, can you imagine that meeting where Ray Charles says, yeah, I want to do a country album. Here's a, a blind black artist, you know, saying, yeah, I'm going to do a country album. And I'm sure you could have heard a pin drop in the room when he said that. <laughs> you know, blind black artist, but he's also known for R&B and jazz. He wasn't even known as country or pop. Yeah. He's going to go into a pop. <laughs> and not only do country, he's going to do country his way. Well, he redid country, boy, that album. What an unbelievable influence that had on on all of country music. And of course, we're talking about modern sounds in country and Western music, which is an absolute classic. But I Can't Stop Loving You, uh, you know, written by Don Gibson, recorded the first time in 1957. And, you know, again, we're talking about this whole period, late 50s, early 60s. The lines weren't delineated so much like they are today. You know, right, exactly. Right. Elvis Presley was at first billed as a country guy, even though he was clearly doing rock and roll type stuff. And, um, you know, so Ray Charles decides to put out a country and Western album and it becomes a massive, massive hit. And the label was pretty hesitant about it, but he won out. But they weren't so hesitant when they said, hey, Ray, do a second one. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, you know, exactly. I Can't Stop Loving You was, you know, Don Gibson put it out as a on the B side of Oh Lonesome Me, but it became a hit in its own right. And did you know that there's more than 700 versions of this song? Oh, I'm not surprised because you hear it all. You still hear it all the time. I hear it by Ray Charles. I don't often hear it by anyone else. But I love Ray's version. Don't you? I th- yeah, I think Ray's is the, to me, Ray's is the definitive version of the song. I think Don Gibson would have said as much as well. And it's interesting, right? Because here's a black artist covering a white artist and doing it better. Yeah. So, you know, let's let's tip our hat to that. I mean, our cowboy hat or our fedora. You take your pick. Well, that's um, right. Because this was old school, uh, you know, excuse me for saying this, but this was old school twangy country music. Hurtin', hurtin' songs, hurtin' yeah, songs. Hurtin yeah, song, that's right. That's the word I was looking for, yeah. And and Ray Charles made what is, I agree with you, probably the definitive version of the song. Well, and, and I'm sure, you know, Don Gibson probably loved it just as much as you and I because it was huge and it, it sold truckloads of records. And it introduced a lot of, say, middle America and, and country fans to Ray Charles. And, and, you know, years later when Ray Charles was recording with... Um, you know, he had hits with Willie Nelson and he would record with other country artists. It was beautiful because it was opening up the doors to say, hey, you know what? You may, you may have missed Ray Charles over the years. You want to check him out? Let's check him out. All right. So it was a brilliant. And it also turned some people who are fans of Ray Charles onto some country music going, you know what? This is actually not bad. Yeah. And, you know, this is 1962. Doesn't that feel awfully progressive? Oh, sure. It, it Sure does. Yeah, you know, especially 100%. considering the nonsense that we're going through today where, I again, I'm not going to rant about it, but it, it feels really progressive. Now, your charts, though, in the USA, uh, Ray wasn't number one, but I'm looking at this chart and it's it's very cool. I remember a lot of these songs. 
He will be number one in about a week. Okay. But he's yeah. number one in the UK. But number five is, remember I said, Brian Highland. So his number one, his number five single in America is Sealed with a Kiss. Number four is the Orlons. Wah, wah, to see. I do too. I remember that. Yeah. It's a great song. Ray, number three is Ray Charles. I can't stop loving you. Number two is the is the biggest mystery of my life. Why this was a big hit, I'll never know. I David I, Rose. Yeah. I love that song, by the way, but go ahead. Sorry to interrupt there. Okay. No, no, no. That's fine. Hang on. I never said I didn't like it, but are you not a bit surprised it made number one? Oh, I'm shocked. Yeah. So this is D- David Rose, the stripper. <laughs> Have you ever played it? I... Um, just for fun, I started writing an arrangement of it, but I would never be allowed to do that with a high school stage band. But it was fun just to try to figure out some of the lines, you know? Well, well because of the title? Well, yeah, because of the title. I think that that wouldn't go over well, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just and now for our Catholic school presentation. <laughs> of the stripper. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we have a special guest too. No, um, but it's a great song. It is a great song, but it's an odd one to make. That I mean, I just can you picture a night in 2022, an instrumental like that <laughs> yeah. even getting played on the radio? Oh, I can't. I can't. Right. I just. But here's the charge: you got Brian Highland sealed with a kiss. Wawa Tusi. I can't stop loving you. Then you get the stripper, and number one. Speaking of sap. Uh, the Bobby Vinton, who was known as the Polish Prince, everybody, and roses are red. Oh gosh, yeah, Bobby Vinton, man, that guy was. Uh, I remember seeing him on TV a lot when I was a kid, so I he, I remember this clearly. To his credit, he had hits right into the mid to late seventies. He in the mid seventies he had a hit called "My Melody of Love." Yes, yes, there you go. I remember that one as well. Right. He was he was one of those people that just kind of flew under the radar. But, you know, he had Mr. Lonely and See You in September and um, so many hits, Blue on Blue. Um, he was he was a smart cookie. Like, he knew how to prolong his career. I mean, by the late 70s, he's on Match Game all the time. But other than that, he, was, he, he did a good job. Well, he certainly did. And you know what? I think uh, we're at the end of our A Day in the Life episode here. But what a, what a cool day that was in history, wasn't it? Oh, so it's it, it's like it's like that special day that just everything aligns for the July twelfth, right? Yeah, amazing. I love. We should do more of these episodes. Actually, they're really fun. Well, there'd be more days like this. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm in. Come yeah. in, bud. Well, you know, when I was doing the uh, research, I saw it. and I said, "Oh man, like to, to skip all the other days. This is just just such a cool day." But let's uh, let's cue up our closing music here because it's that time. So Rick Denis provided all of the music today that you heard on the show. So thanks, Rick. And uh, Rick and I both live in Perth now, so that is very handy because we're gigging partners as well. Yeah. Um, And we want to thank you as always. We have to thank you, the listeners, for tuning in every week and letting us into your headphones and sharing the show and providing us with your comment. We we get some great comments on social media, don't we? I love it. I look forward every week to when we when you post stuff and then we get the comments from people. It literally makes my day. Yeah, and, and you know what? And sometimes we'll have somebody who has been somewhere that we talk about on the show. Um, yeah, I love it. Me too, me too. So folks, uh, thanks, thanks again for everything that you do to support the show and we're going to keep on going here. But Aaron, 
You know, when the man gets you down, just like happened this week when uh, with that Rogers debacle, what do you Don't do? Don't even speak to me. What I did that day, just kept on rocking, because that's basically it. There you go. We'll see you next time, folks. <laughs>